Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Good morning, everyone. How you doing today? Whoa, the 11's lively, hey? That's good. Welcome here, 11. I, uh, I heard 920 was the best, but I guess we're going to find out, aren't we? Amen? No, of course not. Yeah, yeah. It's good uh, to be here with you this morning. I'm not so sure I can pull 22 plus weeks from the dump in one go, uh, nor do I think it's really as bad as Doug made it out to be. Uh, but it's a joy and a pleasure to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible or device, open up to Mark chapter 15. If you have a Bible or device, Mark chapter 15. And let me just let you know, in case you don't know, the Bible is now available in print. You can, um, they actually print physical copies of these. And you can get them online or in store. And so I just encourage you, if you don't have one yet, maybe pick up one of those. The printing press came around some 500 years ago. And so it's just good to know that some of you are just realizing that now. You know, together this morning, uh, we arrive at the end of our study in Mark's gospel. If you're new to the church or the way of Jesus, that word gospel, um, we could just say Mark's ancient biography of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus who lived and taught and laid down his life on a Roman cross. And so the story of his biography goes raised from the dead. We come to the ending of this gospel narrative. And what we know about the ending is the ending means the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It means a new beginning. And listen, for two millennia, scholars and historians and teachers of the way of Jesus have been studying what we know as the passion narrative. The word here for passion, can, it means suffering or enduring, the suffering or the enduring narrative of Jesus. And we've carefully attended to this particular narrative throughout the course of history, at least these last 2,000 years, because we know this, that Jesus Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth upon the Roman cross is the fullest revelation of the character and nature of our God. In the death of Jesus of Nazareth on a Roman cross, we're able to witness and to know the character and the nature and the glory of the God of Israel who's manifested in flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, this the entire movement of Mark's ancient biography has been leading to the revelation of God upon the cross. And Mark's desire has been to move us to the cross quickly and succinctly because only at the cross do we find the complete revelation of God, Mark would say to us. Only via the, the centrality of the cross can we begin to grasp the love of God and the faithfulness of God, indeed, dare I say, the hope that only comes from our God. As Paul says, to know Christ crucified. 
In fact, throughout the course of interpretive history, and by that I just mean studying this particular passion narrative, a large segment of scholars have called the Gospels, but in particular Mark, a passion narrative with an extended introduction. You see, because Mark wants to move us to this passion narrative so quickly that they've said this is simply none other than these first 13 chapters are leading us along the way. As Mark says over and over again, immediately, 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 as Jesus moves quickly to the cross. And I know this, that Mark chapter 15 along with these other passion narratives and the other biographies of Jesus, which you find within our bound canon, I know this, that they've been studied over and over and over again throughout our history. And there are a myriad of fruitful approaches. There are many different fruitful approaches to reading these narratives and paying careful attention to particular motifs that are playing out. And we could do that this morning. We could spend time thinking about Jesus as Mark depicts him as the righteous sufferer from the Psalms. We could think about Jesus as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. We could think of the varying atonement theories that our church's history has offered, and helpfully so, the majority of them help us get a clear picture of the cross. You see, because the cross is kaleidoscopic. The cross has many different facets and there are many different angles from which we can look at Jesus on the cross. And this morning, we do not have time for all of them. I've been told not to go three hours this morning. Amen? Thanks be to God. Here's what I know. Yeah, it's good, right? Here's what we're going to do this morning then. I want to home in on one particular motif or theme this morning. And I think it's the most important theme that Mark has been offering to us throughout the gospel, and it's this. It's kingdom and kingship. That Mark has worked very hard from the very beginning to talk about the kingdom of God as it arrives in full power and the way in which Jesus of Nazareth is the king of that very kingdom. And so I like outlines, so let me offer one to you. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go back together to the very first verses of Mark's gospel, because I don't know about you, but I find beginnings very important. In fact, beginnings typically set up the trajectory, and so I know that the first few verses of Mark lay out for us what he's longing to accomplish through his biography. Then we're going to quickly jump back to Isaiah the prophet and look at the gospel as it's foretold by Isaiah. And then we're going to offer a quick narrative outline of Mark's gospel where I can show you where kingship shows up at key moments in his narrative. And then, Lord willing, we'll make it to the verses we're covering today, 521 to 16.8, and we'll conclude with some reflections. Are you with me this morning? Amen. But first, let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth And the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing this morning in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we turn back together then to Mark chapter 1 verse 1. As Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet. You know, what's interesting about Mark chapter 1, verse 1, is that it's something out of the school of redundancy school. It's all right. Didn't land at the 920 either, so it's okay for now, right? 
You know, for those of you who are new to reading the scriptures or the way of Jesus, this word gospel was used in antiquity and throughout our scriptures. And the word gospel, it means this, it's about the declaration of a kingly victory. That as kings would win battles and war, someone would come running back to the city with a gospel message to declare that the king has indeed won the victory. Or perhaps you're familiar with something called the Priene inscription in the ancient world, which reads this way, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus, son of God, that was written as contemporary with Mark. Because the gospel about Caesar, according to the first century world, is that Caesar is the true king who wins the victories. And Mark is saying from the beginning, no, this is the beginning of the true king. The kingly message of Jesus, Messiah, which means king, son of God. Now, here's the thing about this turn of phrase, son of God. With two millennia of church history, when we hear son of God, we immediately think of the second person of the Trinity, yes? That's not actually what Mark means here. If you turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, what you find is Yahweh speaking to David. And here's what he says to him. As David has proven himself faithful to God, God says, David, you are my son, and there will always be a son of God to sit on your throne. You see, son of God also means king. In the ancient world, it would have been known as uh, Divi Filius, son of God. And so what we find here is Mark is saying this is the beginning of the message of the kingly victory of Jesus, the long-awaited king. But he doesn't stop there. He says this has been written about long before it ever hit Mark's mind or his lips or his pen. It's been written about by Isaiah the prophet. In fact, Isaiah 52 puts it this way. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who preach gospel, who publish peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, your God is king. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices together, they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes and they will burst into songs of joy together. You ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will bear his holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Many of you who pay careful attention to the gospel according to Isaiah will know this, that a few short verses later, we find ourselves in Isaiah 53. And we find the way in which the kingship of God is being demonstrated is through the death of his suffering servant. But look at Isaiah's language with me quickly. Isaiah is speaking about gospel. Isaiah is prophesying a time when God will again reign and rule not only over his people, but all the nations of the world. When the kingship of God will again be established. And on that day, Isaiah says, you will break forth with singing, with shouts of joy as the people come forth to say yet again, your God has become king. And Isaiah says, on that day, Yahweh will extend his righteous right arm. Maybe a better paraphrase that I can offer to you. Isaiah is saying, one day God is going to flex And the day that God flexes is the day that all nations will see his power and it will result in salvation. You want to see true guns, wait till you see the guns of the God of Israel, Isaiah says. You're welcome to laugh at that. 
And yet that is what Isaiah is saying, is he not? God will extend his arm and redeem his people. And Mark is saying, this is what's happening now in Jesus of Nazareth at the very first verse of his gospel. He's saying, this is the beginning of the kingly message of Jesus, the king that you have all been waiting for. God is acting again to demonstrate his kingship over the world. In, in fact, in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, Mark writes that Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, God's very gospel, saying this, the appointed time has arrived and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and put your faith or your allegiance or your trust or your belief in this gospel, in this message. What we find here is Jesus' declaration of the gospel is intimately attached with the declaration of the kingdom. We learn this from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. If we want our gospel declaration to be the same as Jesus' gospel declaration, we must declare the arrival of God's kingdom and his king Jesus. That any declaration of the gospel that does not include the kingdom is not the same gospel that's being proclaimed by Jesus here at the beginning of Mark's gospel. The kingdom has arrived. Turn from all other kingdoms, Jesus says, and pledge yourself to God's kingdom as he again becomes king. And Mark's gospel rages forward, like I said, and there are some key moments in Mark's gospel that we should highlight. The first one is in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, as Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, the people are scandalized by him. You see, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in the ancient world were flocking from all the regions to come to Jesus to both find healing at his hand and to hear the words that he is declaring. But the interesting thing about hearing Jesus of Nazareth is kind of this, that you can't stop listening to him, but you are simultaneously deeply scandalized by him. Church, may you continue to listen to the words of Jesus and may you find yourself deeply scandalized by them because they say this, what kind of teaching is this? As we hear the words of Jesus, we think these are not the words of any king or any kingdom that I've ever heard of before. But in Mark chapter 4, the, the sort of narrative shifts and they, they cease to ask what teaching this is and they start to ask who this is. As they're in uh, the hull of the ship and the storm is raging in Mark chapter 4 and Jesus, of course, is asleep, the disciples are terrified and they go to Jesus and they wake him up and Jesus does what only the God of Israel can do. He stops the storm. He stills the chaos and the tyranny and the death that is transpiring around them. And they ask this question, who then is this that the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? It's not simply what he is declaring or teaching or saying. There's something more to this man. Who is this one who can do what only God can do? And we end up in Mark chapter 8, and as they're walking through the villages of Caesarea Philippi, many of you know Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, who do the people say that I am? And Peter says, well, some say uh, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, you know. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? 2,000 years of church history later, and I got to say, this is still one of the most important questions of Mark's narrative. Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter says this, you are the king. You are the long-awaited king of Israel. 
You see, Peter here speaks better than he knows, but the reality is this, that Jesus does something that Peter never would have anticipated. Jesus does something deeply scandalizing. He says, yes, and the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Yes, Peter, you are right about my identity, but you are wrong about the way in which my kingdom comes in power. Jesus says this actually three times in the gospel in chapter 8, in chapter 9, and in chapter 10. Peter does, I think, what we would all do in this moment. We pull aside Jesus, the long-awaited king of Israel, and we begin to rebuke him. Yes? I don't know about you. Peter, you know, speaks well and then does something that is not really in line with his confession. He rebukes Jesus. And of course, Peter then in turn rebukes Jesus then in turn rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you set your mind not on the things of God, but on the things of humans. Jesus essentially says to Peter, Peter, if we were establishing a human kingdom, a demonic human kingdom, we would do things the way that you're suggesting. But God's plan is not the human plan. The way in which the kingdom will come is by means of my death, Jesus says. And so in chapter 8, we find the linchpin of Mark's gospel as Jesus sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And the second half of the gospel, we learn this, how Jesus' mission is going to be accomplished. As we watch Jesus moved towards the cross, as he calls his disciples to do the same. And where we pick up this morning in Mark chapter 15, the gospel is triumphing towards its climax as we find Jesus, the true king, standing before a puppet king, Pontius Pilate, of a tyrannical human empire that politically and economically and socially oppresses all the people. An empire and a kingdom that dominates the world. And Jesus stands before Pilate as the true king, And Pilate is attempting to discern the validity or the reality of Jesus's identity. Mark highlights to us that it is the fourth watch of the night as Jesus is brought before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate's first question is dizzying, as Pilate, I think, speaks better than he knows. What is Pilate's first question? Are you the king of the Jews? You see, the kingdom motif and the kingship motif is coming to its climax here now as Jesus goes to the cross. Because up until this point in the narrative, the kingship of Jesus has not been publicly declared other than by Peter. And here now, five times in this passion narrative, the kingship of Jesus will be referenced. Jesus will be labeled the king of the Jews. Jesus' kingship becomes increasingly apparent as he moves towards the cross, as the ultimate reality of his identity can only be known by means of the cross. And Pilate begins, of course, as you know, to interrogate Jesus, only to be left speechless, yes? Pilate does not know what to say to Jesus. You have no answer to make? Don't you know the charges that they bring against you? And Pilate stands in silence in fulfillment of Isaiah 52, 15, which says kings will shut their mouths because of him. In fact, Pilate almost immediately recognizes Jesus' innocence, that the religious elite, the upper echelons of society, had only handed over Jesus out of envy because they were threatened by him. They were threatened by the kingdom and the kingship that he was declaring. 
And so Pilate tries to see Jesus released. And there's a custom every year where one prisoner would be released as part of the Passover festival. And Pilate says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And the people say no. Instead, they choose a man named Barabbas. Now don't miss the theological significance of what Mark is saying to us here. The name Barabbas, the word bar means son of, and, the name, and Abba means father. Barabbas' name means son of the father. Mark is showing to us two different sons of the father. Jesus, the true son of the father, the true long-awaited king of Israel, and another son of the father who's tried to bring about the revolution of God by insurrection and murder. He is a brigand, according to the New Testament. And who do the people choose? They choose Barabbas. They scorn the true son of the father and they choose an insurrectionist and a murderer. They condemn God's beloved son. Jesus is then led into the praetorium, which is the governor's headquarters. He's led into the palace and here's what they do. They put a purple cloak on him and they give him a crown and the whole military cohort kneels down and pays homage to him and they all declare, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, in the first century world, this is the way in which a king would be established. The king would be led into the praetorium. He would be given a purple robe. Purple is the color of royalty. He would be offered a crown and all of the military would kneel down before him and they would hail him as king as he would be established as king. And this is exactly what's happening with Jesus. He's being given royal garbs as the entire military cohort is kneeling down to worship him, Mark says, to kneel down in homage to him as he's established his king. And do you see the irony that seeps out of Mark's gospel in this moment? I don't know about you. I love movies and stories. Uh, from beginning to end, I love to dissect them and think about um, the initial narrative sequence and the plot complications and the way in which plots are repaired and the people return to fulfilling their initial task. And I like to study characters. I love literary criticism. I confess out loud. <laughs> Some of you are like, not me, bro. <laughs> and here's the thing about stories is often when we watch things or read stories, we know better than the characters, Yes. We know that that person should not go into that room because danger is on the other side of the door, yes? We've all unfortunately seen the romantic comedy where the guy and the girl are walking away from one another at the exact same time and the guy looks back while the girl is looking the other way and then the girl looks back while the guy is looking the other way and it's just gut-wrenching, you know? And you think, no, if only you would look back at the right time, you know? I'm forced to watch many romantic comedies because my wife loves them. <laughs> Thanks be to God. I love her. I don't love the movies. Let's just put it that way. Mark wants us, I think, to understand this with complete clarity. And before we dive into this text this morning, I need you to see what he's doing. Is he saying, hey, as readers, we should know exactly what's going on here. This is the means by which Jesus is becoming king and the cross is Jesus' throne. The cross is the throne of Jesus. Jesus is being established here and enthroned as king. 
The crucifixion of Jesus is an enthronement ceremony. It's a conquering over the kingdoms of this world ceremony, establishing the victory of God, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it, the prophet Isaiah says. The way in which Jesus is established as king is via the cross. The way in which we can be restored to our role as God's chosen partners, working with him for the restoration of all things, is by the cross. The cross is the quintessential expression of Jesus' demonstration of power and love and kingship. As the God of Israel lays down his life on a Roman cross and conquers all the kingdoms of this world. Friends, as we read, know that what Mark is saying is this cross is Jesus' throne as he is now coming into his kingdom with power. We pick up Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Read there with me. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross, that is Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. And they cast lots to see what each one would get. Notice what Mark is saying now already at this point in this narrative, that the weight, the crushing weight of the violence and the tyranny and the sin and the death has already resulted in Jesus' inability to carry his own cross. Nor can he carry himself at this point in the narrative. We read that they compelled a passerby, a, a stranger, a Jew named Simon from the North African city of Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya, to bear the cross for Jesus. Hey, you, carry the cross. Now, I think there's both a historical and a theological significance to the detail that Mark offers us here. The first, I think, and people have remarked upon this throughout our church's history— is that it's likely that the earliest readers of Mark's gospel would have known Alexander and Rufus. And Mark is saying, hey, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, the, these are members of our, our community. His dad was the one who carried Jesus' cross. I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is more theological in nature. I think as we read these narratives, we are supposed to find ourselves within the story. And surprise, surprise, we're never Jesus, by the way, just to be clear. In this case, I think we are to see ourselves as Simon of Cyrene. We are being welcomed to take up cross and walk alongside Jesus as he lays down his life. We are to see ourselves in the role of Simon as we carry the cross with Jesus. As they move towards the place of the skull, the, word, the Latin word for skull is cavalria, from which we get the word calvary. And it derives its names for at least two reasons. One, because there would have been bones and skulls just lying on the ground from all the people who had been murdered there and left for dead. But two, because some people suggest that it might have had a skull-like shape, that it was a rounded knoll. And as Jesus gets to this place of the skull, this place of Calvary, this place of death, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, but he does not take it. Now, wine mixed with myrrh was commonly offered to people who were enduring crucifixion and suffering and pain. It was a sort of uh, 
elixir that was offered to the people so that they, would, they wouldn't feel the pain. The pain would be numbed. Think of this as a kind of numbing agent to not experience the beating, the labor, and the pain of crucifixion. But listen, Jesus does not take it, and I think this is significant, because Jesus is giving up his life as a ransom for many, and any attempt to lessen the pain Um, Any attempt to lessen the pain of the demise may be suspect as betrayal of his mission to suffer for all people, to taste death for everyone. That if Jesus drinks this drink, he will not feel the pain that he is intended to feel as he bears the wounds of humanity. Mark continues, and Jesus is closed and they cast lots for them in fulfillment of Psalm 22, 18. Mark continues in verse 25. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Quite literally, Mark writes, the epigraph or the sign that was above Jesus labels him as the King of the Jews. Everyone would have seen this title as Jesus is upon his cross, which is a throne. But Mark adds this interesting detail that two were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Now, there's only one other time in the gospel that we've heard about anyone being next to Jesus on his right and on his left, and that's in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. They said, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus replied, And they said, let one of us sit one at your right and the other at your left in glory. When you come into your kingdom, they're saying. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You see, James and John are saying, Jesus, when you're enthroned as king and you come into your kingdom, we want to sit one at your right and one at your left. And Jesus is saying, oh no, you don't yet understand the way in which I'm coming into my kingdom or what my throne looks like. Because if you did, I'm not convinced you'd be asking to be seated one at my right and one at my left. Jesus says, you are not yet ready to drink the cup of suffering I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized. In fact, just after this, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give up his life as a ransom for many. You see, here now in Mark chapter 10, we see what power looks like according to Jesus. We see what the kingdom coming in glory looks like according to Jesus. It's being crucified on a Roman cross. Mark continues, verse 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him. Quite literally, they blasphemed him, shaking their heads and saying, so, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. That word also means heal. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified him also heaped insults upon him. You see, it's interesting. They're here asking now for a sign. They're saying, if you truly are the long-awaited king of Israel, if you truly are the son of God, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. Those of you who remember Mark chapter four, this is the exact language that Jesus uses for the parable of the sower, the parable of the kingdom. Ears to hear and eyes to see. They're saying, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. 
But the irony is this, is that they want Jesus to come down from the cross. And that's the means by which they think he will demonstrate his power. But the reality that we know is this, it's only by remaining on the cross that Jesus demonstrates his power. By coming down from the cross does not demonstrate the kingship of God that's being depicted in Mark's gospel. It's remaining on the cross that shows us what kingship looks like and who Jesus really is. The only place where anyone, including including the Jewish leaders, will see the Messiah, the King of Israel, and believe is on the cross. As one scholar puts it, the compassionate deliverer of his people, the Christ, the King of Israel, must save others through his atoning death, and therefore he cannot save himself by descending from the cross. And we've learned this already in Mark chapter 8. It's actually in the loss of death that life is found both for Jesus here in his atoning sacrifice, but also for you and I as we take up cross, lay down our lives and follow him. That that's what being a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like. Mark then says in verse 33, at noon darkness came over the whole of the land until three in the afternoon. We see prophecies fulfilled from Joel and Amos and even the last plague in Exodus, darkness over the land and then death of the firstborn son. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Elohi, Elohi, lemach sebaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the way that um, echoes work from the Old Testament and the New Testament is they sound a lot of reverberations in our hearts and in our minds. We know this because when we watch uh, movies or television shows or when we listen to songs, sometimes it can only be one line from something that evokes the entire story or the entire song. Yes? Once upon a time has evocative resonances to a million stories that you've heard before. I only need to say the words free fallen before you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you don't, Lord bless you and keep you. I'm just kidding. And this is exactly what's happening here. As Jesus cries out Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, he's not only crying out Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, Jesus is evoking the entire psalm. And we're not going to have time for all of it this morning, but I want to encourage you to read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is the exact journey of Jesus on the cross, which begins with this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. The psalmist continues as the psalmist writes about what it looks like to be a righteous sufferer who feels abandoned by God, wondering where the God of Israel is. But by the end of the psalm, we read this in verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him for kingship, that is dominion, now again belongs to the Lord. And he rules over all nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Or in John's language, it is finished. 
You see, as Jesus offers the cry of dereliction from the cross, he's not only saying, God is far from me and I'm suffering this atoning death. He's also saying, this is the means by which the kingdom comes in power and all nations will see the glory of God. They will declare this now to a people yet unborn. And friends, that is you and I. I am declaring to a people who were not yet born that he has done it. In Jesus of Nazareth, it is finished. Mark 15, 35, when some some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a reed and offered it to Jesus to drink. One other person said, now leave him alone. See if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw the way that he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. As Jesus now is on the cross, he breathes his last. This cry of dereliction as Jesus dies a death on the cross in order that his kingship might be demonstrated and the kingdom might come in power and the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. A first century historian by the name of Josephus says, uh, two horses attached to either side of the curtain moving in opposite directions couldn't pull it apart. It was so thick. And here now Mark says, the curtain in the temple is rent asunder. The only other time in the gospel that Mark uses this particular verb is in Mark chapter one, when the heavens are torn open and the spirit of God descends like a dove. And as good readers of the gospel, I think we're supposed to know this, that as the curtain in the temple is torn into, the spirit of God is poured out on all flesh now. So much so that a Roman centurion, a member of the empire that stands against the way of God's people, the empire that rules in oppression and tyranny and death, this man who is a member of the Roman army looks at Jesus and said, this guy is the true king of the world. Not Caesar, but Jesus, this man is the son of God. As the spirit inspires all flesh, to confess the reality of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 42, it was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, notice that, went boldly to Pilate and asked him for Jesus's body. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. So summoning the centurion, Pilate asked him if Jesus had indeed already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth and took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed, him, uh, placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So Joseph of Arimathea comes for the body of Jesus as he indeed as other members of the gospel were, is seeking the kingdom of God. He comes to bury Jesus. And as Jesus steps into the darkness of the old age, we wonder what happens now. Maybe Jesus wasn't actually the long-awaited king. Maybe the kingdom isn't really coming in power, Mark. And then, of course, we turn to Mark chapter 16, when the Sabbath was over. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might anoint Jesus' body. 
You see, they don't know that in Mark chapter 14, the woman had already anointed Jesus's body for burial. And very early in the morning, again, Mark says, the fourth watch of the night, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. But they didn't plan very well because they were asking one another along the way, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. That's an angel or a messenger of God sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. They were terrified. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Amen? See the place where they laid him. But listen, go. Tell his disciples and Peter the one who had denied him three times, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, but they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What we find in Mark chapter 16 is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 30, verse 5. Weeping may linger in the night, but joy comes in the morning. We find here in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the vindication of Jesus. This is proof that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited king of Israel, that God raised him from the dead. This is the evidence that Jesus truly was who he said he was as he comes to inaugurate the kingdom of God and demonstrate God's kingship over the world. And listen, throughout Mark's gospel, it's interesting Jesus continually tells people not to tell others of the reality of his identity. Historically, people have called it the Markan secret, to not speak about Jesus's identity. But it's funny because in the moment now where people are called to go and declare to everyone the reality of Jesus's identity, what do they do? In fear and trembling, they run away and they tell no one. They tell no one. Finally, the opportunity is before them to declare the hope and the power and the resurrection and the kingship of God. And what do they do? Instead, they leave and in fear and trembling, they tell no one. You see, Mark presents us with an interesting challenge as he ends his gospel. If we were again to think of this as a film, I think this might be what the last shot looks like. Imagine a shot right in front of Jesus's tomb as the women walk into darkness and we don't know what's going to happen in there. And immediately the scene cuts to the inside of the tomb looking out from darkness into light with the horizon behind. And what we hear is this screams and the women running out of the tomb. Imagine the women run out of the tomb and out of frame and we hear their footsteps as they run away. We hear their screams as they're going, but eventually we don't hear them running anymore because they're long since gone. But we're left from the inside of the tomb looking out, wondering what is going to happen next. And after a very, very, very long shot, the scene fades to a close and the credits roll. And we're left to wonder, what does it all mean? Was all of this suffering really necessary? Does Jesus' empty tomb mean that he has indeed triumph over death? Does Jesus' absence from the tomb mean that he is really somewhere else? And since Mark's story doesn't wrap up all the loose ends, and I know we have it in other gospels, but imagine with me for a moment. Mark encourages us 
to go back to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, and to begin to read this story as your and my story. Mark invites us back to the beginning. But a couple of things as we conclude our time this morning. A couple of concluding thoughts as we end the gospel together. First, we find in Mark's gospel the king who identifies with the suffering of his people, yes? You know, I think there's a pervasive shallowness that's existed for centuries within our church culture, a shallowness that I think stands in direct contradiction to the gospel. Here it is. We tend to overemphasize the deity of Jesus with the expense of the humanity of Jesus. We prioritize the otherness of God at the expense of the humanness of God. We prioritize the holiness of God with the expense of God's identification with human suffering. We prioritize the transcendence of God at the expense of God's nearness to his people and to those who suffer. And there's a balancing act to be had here, but I think what we lose in this prioritization is the controlling image of the cross, the fullest revelation of God in Jesus as he lays down his life in suffering. And here it is. We often ask questions like these. Where is God? Maybe you're here this morning and that's your question. Where is God if evil is present in the world? Where is God while humans are hungry and thirsty and homeless and exiles and refugees? Where is God when an innocent person dies as a result of violence and terrorism and tyranny and war? Where is God in the midst of economic, social, and political injustice? Where is God in the midst of disease and racism and addiction and exploitation and human trafficking? Where is God? And what we find is this, is that God is with them. God suffers alongside of them. Jesus above them and below them and beside them and within them suffers as they suffer. Jesus has experienced in the cross and in his life the plight of human suffering and he identifies intimately with your human weakness, your need, and your pain. He is not a God who is distant and does not understand. He is a God who understands and feels what you feel deeply. The legitimacy of Jesus' birth was doubted. His family considered him out of his mind. He was betrayed by his closest friends. He was falsely accused. He was tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. He was brutally tortured by beating and execution. He was mocked and reviled by his own people. And perhaps worst of all, he, tra he died tragically and terribly alone. Jesus withstood the brutality of human existence. Jesus walked through valleys of shadow of death. And listen, there is no place that your feet will step that Jesus has not already walked before you. He is with you in your suffering. He takes on the ugliness and the shame and the weakness of our humanity. He fully committed himself to the human condition. We are bound to God in suffering, church. May you know as Jürgen Moltmann writes, when we feel pain, we participate in God's pain. And when we grieve, we share in his grief. People who believe in the God who suffers with us recognize their suffering in God and God in their suffering. May you know that Jesus identifies with you in your suffering. Second, as we land the plane a little bit quicker here this morning, we find the way in which God, as the true king of the world, we find the way that he rules here. 
We find that in God's economy, God does not rule by oppression and the military industrial complex and through murder and death and tyranny and slavery. This is not the way that our king rules. Our king rules by laying down his life and serving for others. This is what real kingship looks like, Jesus says. If you want to be raised up in God's economy, you must lower yourself. We see this in Jesus. Jesus lowers himself to the lowest extent, as Paul says, even to death on a cross. May we follow the righteous and just decrees of our God and may we serve after our King Jesus. May we take up cross. May we know that Jesus is a good King. May we know that regardless of who we are and where we come from this morning, we all worship. We must all worship something. We all have a King to whom we subscribe and my King is Jesus. I follow him and his patterns and his ways because I see what real kingship looks like in him. We see the movement of the kingdom in Jesus, laying down life because the cross is the means and the message of the gospel. Oftentimes we know that the cross is the message, but we forget that it's also the means by which we live out the good news of Jesus. It is one and the same. Finally, as we end this morning, I can't help but think about the response of the women in the tomb in Mark's gospel. As we end Mark's gospel together after 22 plus weeks, what is our response to the reality of Jesus in the world? What is our response to the kingdom of God? What is our response to the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that only comes in him? Do we leave this place in trembling and in fear telling no one? Do we leave this place to go to lunch and simply forget about the 22 weeks that we've had together as we've wrestled with the teachings of Jesus? How do we respond? Mark is pressing us as he ends the gospel. Do you run from the tomb? Do you run from the church this morning in fear? Or do you go declaring knowing that Jesus has gone before you? Do you go to proclaim the good news of Jesus Messiah, Son of God, who has transformed the world and who now invites us into his mission of restoring all things? Friends, may we again today submit ourselves to the rulership of Jesus. May we be a people who serve only him as king and declare his goodness in our world. And may we be the hands and feet of the gospel as we, in Paul's language, reconcile the world to God. May we not participate in other kingdoms of this world, but may we be citizens of God's kingdom and God's kingdom alone. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here together to end your gospel. Father, may we worship and serve you and you alone. Make this so in each of our lives, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.